Hello, and welcome to the Finch Podcast from the Finch Media Group. Today is January 15th, 2021. We're your hosts, Will and Alex, and we've got a lot to talk about, so let's get right into it. For over three centuries, Montmartre in Paris has been a sanctuary for artists. With a rise in anti-immigrant attitudes throughout Europe, how is the sanctuary accommodating its latest guests, refugees? And why do fingernails and hair just keep growing? What's the point of them anyway? 55 million years of evolution in five minutes. Everything at the orphanage seems normal until we revisit Kazuo Ishiguro's 2005 Nobel laureate masterpiece, Never Let Me Go. Donald Trump has lost the presidency, but has he lost the Republican Party? Does Trumpism exist or will they ditch him on January 20th? Predictions for 2024 and the fate of our republic. But first, the problems with genocide, how a term can change a charge, permanent security, and the white nation. Dirk Moses is the Frank Porter Graham Distinguished Professor of Global Human Rights History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Having taught and researched at the University of Sydney, the European University Institute at Florence, and the University of Freiburg, he is widely regarded as one of the leading researchers on the topic of genocide and ethnic cleansing. The editor-in-chief of the Journal of Genocide Research, his latest book, The Problems of Genocide, Permanent Security, and the Language of Transgression, comes out later this year. He joins us now. It's a pleasure. To lay a groundwork for this episode, what exactly is genocide, or what some people call the crime of crimes? So genocide is often called the crime of crimes. Uh, That's a somewhat disputed status, but uh, we can talk about how and why that's the case. But as as many people know, genocide is a fairly recent invention. It was concocted by a Polish Jewish lawyer while he was working uh, temporarily at Duke University in 1943 when he was writing a book on Nazi occupation policies. And it was published then a year later in late 1944. So that's when the word really begins, right? But then it takes on a career of its own. The UN General Assembly passes a resolution calling for a genocide convention in late 1946. And then two years later, in late 1948, the UN General Assembly passes a resolution for a convention, which then needs to be ratified by other states, obviously. So we're talking about the last uh, 70 years or so. And uh, at the time, Lemkin said we should make genocide the crime of crimes. Now, the context of that statement is the following. You had, of course, the Nuremberg trials going on in 19, uh, late 45 and 46. And then there were subsequent military trials and military tribunals run by the, the US government rather than an international military tribunal. In any event, at the International Military Tribunal, the the leading crime was the crime of aggression or crime against peace, invading other countries. Uh, And Lemkin was trying to say, no, no, the leading crime should be the the crime of destroying a people, as in the Holocaust, for example. But he, he was interested in other cases as well. So that's what genocide is, the attempt to destroy uh, people in, in whole or in part. Now, of course, Lemkin had a very broad definition of what genocide was in this book that he wrote, Access Rule and Occupied Europe in 1944. But to convert that into a short legal formulation in the in the convention, it was another matter. Then it became a diplomatic issue, uh, which was thrashed out in the United Nations in various committees and then eventually put to the, to the General Assembly. And there, the, his broad definition was narrowed somewhat. So that's the legal definition that has been incorporated in the statute of the uh, International Criminal Court, the ICC, for example. So that that's now the, the gold standard. What does genocide look like in 2021? Um, we're hearing about the Uyghurs in China and uh, the Rohingya in Burma. Is genocide becoming more prevalent? Um, and, you know, based on the definitions you've just made, how is it relevant today? Well, it's relevant because it's, a prosecutable offence in the International Criminal Court and in various government state statutes. You know, certain certain nation states have 
criminalized genocide in their criminal codes. Uh, and but others haven't. Right? Now, the you know the, the legal issue is one matter, okay, and, but making it stick is very difficult. And, and there are other crimes that international tribunals can can uh, indict people for uh, crimes against humanity and war crimes, for example. Okay, uh, they're, they're, the three of them are often known as atrocity crimes. The United Nations even has a special rapporteur for atrocity crimes. Now, genocide is harder to prove because you need to demonstrate an intention, an intent to destroy in whole or in part, and then a series of acts which can be uh, evidence, which need to be carried out and then linked to that intention to prove genocide. Okay, Whereas crimes against humanity uh, dispenses with the intention aspect and uh, what it's a it's a crime of what the lawyers call strict liability just the very act of having committed you know mass killings or mass deportations and so forth can amount to a crime of a crime uh, against humanity now that's the legal aspect the diplomatic aspect is the following is you know it, accusing one country of committing genocide is a way of putting moral pressure on it and political pressure okay so that both of those aspects are in play in the China case, for example, with the Uyghurs. Uh, people who work who work on China, and I know some of them, who you know, particularly on Xinjiang, and the and the Uyghur question. We published an article on this in the Journal of Genocide Research recently, incidentally, which um, your listeners can look up by Joe Smith Finlay. Uh, you know, they, you know, they're interested in what's happening on the ground. Okay, they they they're very concerned by. Uh, the conduct of the the Chinese state and the circumstances in which so many Uyghurs find themselves. Now, they're thinking then, well, how can we bring some pressure to bear on this conduct? And, you know, how do we understand it analytically and, and legally? They're not always the same thing. Because people might have a, a, you know, a conception of genocide, which is, it is like the layman's conception, you know, that well, the Chinese are, are trying to um, destroy this group in various ways, and we think that looks like genocide. But when you look at the legal definition, it may not match up, or it's impossible to prove the intention. The Chinese state will say, no, this, this is a security measure. Is it, as indeed does the Myanmar military in regard to the Rohingya, they say, no, this is a security measure. There were terrorist acts, and there were a couple, and so we need to take drastic measures. They are drastic, but we need to take uh, drastic measures to ensure that this kind of uh, terrorist insurgency or attacks uh, doesn't recur. Okay? So that's what our intention is. It's not to destroy them because they're Uyghurs. As, that's what the as such means, incidentally, in the, the UN Genocide Convention definition. It says to destroy an ethnic, racial, religious or national group as such. Now that's been interpreted to mean that they're being destroyed on the grounds of their identity alone, not for not for you know for racial hatred reasons, if you like. You know. And for that, the Holocaust is the paradigm or the 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 um, ideal type, uh, which people are sort of thinking about in the back of their head. Uh, and you know we're not. They will say we are not conducting these measures because we have anything personal or racial against this group, it's because they're dangerous, or at least some of their members are dangerous, right? So we need to take precautionary measures. So that's how states operate. Now, one of the things I'm trying to do with my book, which comes out next month, by the way, is to show that this, this emphasis on identity crimes, which is in the genocide concept, is very problematic, which is why I call my book the problems of genocide, because it it gets us sidetracked in this debate about intention, you know, that is attacking a group on the grounds of its identity, when empirically, even for the Nazis, the, the hate against the victim group, you know, above all Jews, was always folded into security language. Now, they can't be pulled apart. So we need to focus on the way states mobilize security panics hypervigilance about security, especially in border regions or people's 
minority groups they regard as traitorous, potentially fifth columns, this kind of language. We need to focus on that phenomenon in order to understand what I call permanent security, which we'll get to. But the, the, the you know, excessive state measures in which civilians are, are targeted and then suffer grievously. And I'm interested in this, this issue of civilian destruction. And that gets, that gets sidelined by a focus on state identity or state attacks on identity grounds alone. This justification of genocide, disguising it as a security threat, just reminds us how often these facades are made in domestic and global politics, and it's, it's really frustrating. Um, you've spoken about a similar concept, uh, the fallacy of intent, saying, quote, what does it matter to civilians if they're killed by violence inflicted with genocidal or militaristic intent? Can you just talk to us a little bit about the symmetry of warfare and tell us more about what this quote means? Sure. So that comes from the introduction where I try to lay out a different kind of approach to conceptualizing the evil of civilian destruction. Now, let's let's understand what I mean by that. Civilian destruction isn't just ethnic or national religious groups that we've mentioned before, the Rohingya, the Uyghurs, and so forth. It's also victims of drone strikes, victims of aerial bombings, people who live in cities and were uh, killed in quote-unquote collateral damage, attacks by rockets, missiles, bombings, so-called precision weapons often, uh, but you know who were killed in the course of military con conflict. Okay, so we're not talking here about a you know classically genocidal situation, but for example, the 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 conflict in Yemen, which is a which is a combination of a civil war with external actors particularly Saudi Arabia, whose arms bought from this country in the UK, mind you, uh, are being used to pound Houthi positions. Uh, but that, that means in effect that certain cities are just flattened or parts of them and lots of civilians are killed. Lots of civilians are killed. Now they're not being killed on identity grounds. They're being killed as side effects of a military conflict, right? Now what I'm saying in that quotation is like, why are we fixated with identity crimes when these kinds of crimes, when I do think it is criminal that these civilians are being killed like this, are completely ignored or, or relatively ignored in the international public sphere because it doesn't look like genocide. It's not, it doesn't, it's not genocide. It's something else, right? But why this distorted lens? If our normative commitment is to preventing innocent civilians from being killed, and harmed and their property destroyed. That's why the cover of my book is a is an art, you know, street art from Yemen, which depicts a a, uh, a family who've been killed in a Saudi missile attack or bombing attack. You know, these are these are forgotten victims. I want all these civilian victims to be remembered equally, and rather that rather than there be a hierarchy of victims, if you like. I'm actually glad you brought up that last phrase because a, a big emphasis of this book and your work is this hierarchy of crimes. Uh, something that I found really interesting while reading The Problems of Genocide um, is this distinction between identity-based crimes and politically-based crimes. Uh, you write that, quote, politically motivated violence does not shock the conscience of mankind in the same way, uh, end quote. Why is that? So uh, there's a few things there. This term shocking the conscience of mankind is not mine. It's a you know, somewhat antiquated language that goes back 500 years, actually, as I trace in the early chapters of the book, and, and recurs in you know, the introductions, the preambles and so forth of many international humanitarian instruments. For example, it's in the preface, well, a version of that phrase is in the, I think in the preamble to the, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, for example. Now, what that phrase or phrases like it mean and signify is that here is a conduct which shocks us to the extent that we think something must be done you know we can't ignore it okay so it is a you know the transgression too shocking too grave too evil to ignore now that sets a threshold at a certain level now what's happened since the holocaust 
which truly shocked European sensibilities, is that the threshold is very high now. You know, it's genocide as the crime of crimes, allegedly, right? And the archetype of genocide is the Holocaust, you know, whether acknowledged or unacknowledged by people. When people look to see what a genocide is, they, they ask, does it resemble the Holocaust in key aspects? Now, it's because people are making that, if you like, imaginative calculus that many instances of civilian destruction are excluded. Now, if you look at the syllabi, you know, the course outlines of genocide classes at universities in this country and other countries, you'll see a certain list of cases. And it's interesting to see what's excluded as much as what's included, right? You'll start off if it's a 20th century, they usually ignore colonial cases like Native Americans, Australian, Indigenous Australians and so on. They'll start maybe with the, the Southwest African case, the Germans in Namibia and before the First World War. Then they'll look at the Armenian case in the First World War, maybe the Soviet Union between the wars, the Ukrainian famine and so forth. Uh, then the Holocaust, obviously. Then they'll jump quite a long time, 30 years, to the Cambodian case, the Khmer Rouge, right, from 1975. Then uh, we jump again from the mid 70s to the, to the early 90s, to Rwanda, 94, and the, you know, certain episodes in the Balkan conflicts in the early 19, or the early mid 1990s at the same time. You know, out of which came the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and you know, another one for Rwanda, which have recently just wrapped up. Uh, and then we might move to Darfur in the, the early, you know, 2005 and so forth. And then that's it. Okay, so what's what's missing there? Well, what about the uh, the famine in the military conflict, civil war in Nigeria in the late 1960s, at the time of which genocide was alleged, it was a large international public debate about that, where millions died because of a, a blockade and a famine. What about the Great Leap Forward in China from 1958 to 62 and a little afterwards, in which possibly 45 million people died. Now, you know, this, was, this wasn't a military conflict either, right? Like, like the Nigerian case, it was a forced, a forced modernization and cultural revolution project, right? And it's completely off the radar from our, because of our genocide optic. You know, the largest instance of civilian suffering in this century is not looked at in genocide studies courses or in any of these political violence courses that you'd get in an international relations or political science department. It, it's off with the historians who work on China. And, you know, I, I think we need to pull, pull all these cases together and, and look at the common denominator, which is civilian destruction and ask ourselves, what's driving all this? And, this is where we get to the issue of permanent security, which I no doubt you want to ask me about next. But just to quickly answer your, your question about, or to circle back, as Americans like to say, to circle back to your question about symmetry. So I, I think I gestured to that in, to, in William's question before. The, there's a, in, well, there's a tendency to argue that for example, these victims in Yemen are not victims of genocide and victims are really in any emphatic way, other than sort of collateral damage in military conflict, uh, because there are there is a civil war going on and they're members of a group who are engaged in an insurgency. This is also what's going on in Myanmar, at least from the government perspective, okay, not from the UN perspective or the NGO sector, but, you know, the, the, the Myanmar authorities say we're engaged in a security quasi-military conflict with a, with a uh, paramilitary force. I mean, I think they're wrong. I mean, they, they, they exaggerate this, but this is how they argue, right? And, and so the... Rohingya civilians who aren't you know, directly involved in the insurgency are discounted as, you know, 
vicariously guilty or liable because they're members of the same group, right? And rhetorically, governments get away with this all the time because by framing a conflict as a, as a military rather than a racial conflict. Now, with a Holocaust framework and therefore also a genocide framework, we get to an asymmetry. Symmetry involves various belligerents, belligerents attacking each other, right? So, and then there are some civilian victims, bad luck. That's how the logic goes. By asymmetric, an asymmetric situation, what I'm arguing or portraying is in the genocide optic, you get a notion of a government attacking innocent victims purely because they don't like them. The racial or ideological grounds, right? And these victims are not somehow related to a military conflict. And classically, people will say, you know, were German Jews involved in a military conflict? Were, were Polish Jews involved in an insurgency against the Germans? Well, later, of course, there were Polish Jews involved in resistance movements. But, you know, that's after, after they've been locked up in camps or, and ghettos and so forth. I mean, that, that puts the, 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 you know, the cart before the horse and so forth. So it, once people subscribe to the, a, the idea that genocide must look like an asymmetrical conflict where the victims are completely innocent and they're or unengaged in, in military conflict, right? or insurgent conflict and so forth, then, well, then we can start saying that they're really victims and uh, accord them particular status as victims of genocide. And then we can recognize that and maybe think about intervening. Right? So that's, that's what I was getting at there. Alex and I were just uh, discussing how this seems like an extreme version of schoolyard bullying. Um, if it's lopsided, it's not okay. But if two f kids are fighting and it's even-handed, then that's somewhat more acceptable. Um, the analogy breaks down, of course, but I think that the collateral damage of these lives lost is just as important, and I think that that's the crux of the matter here. Um, I want to turn to the issue of permanent security that you just mentioned earlier. What exactly is permanent security? So permanent security is the aspiration that states have, and also groups that want to form states, you know, want to take over a state. Uh, to for absolute safety, which means turning a legitimate conventional security imperative, which all states have, it's not legitimate for states to worry about their borders and, and resources and so forth, right? And want law and order. But to turn that normal security imperative into, if you like, put it on steroids and, and be concerned about a broader notion of security forever, which, may, which, which leads to expansionism uh, and to inevitably to conflict in which civilians are victims. So that, you know, there's a, there's a central chapter in the book about Nazi Germany as, a, as an example of what I call illiberal permanent security. And where I try to show that the Nazis were driven by security imperatives and that they regarded Jews as a, a very dangerous people. Now, of course, I don't, I don't ascribe any legitimacy to that, but you have to understand how they thought. In their, you know, they're driven by paranoia. I mean, there's a lot of paranoia involved in, in, in security thinking. You know, there's a difference between vigilance and hypervigilance. Okay? Uh, we know people who are paranoid in our own personal experiences, perhaps, and then you can see the difference between people who, you know, your average well-adjusted person obviously worry, you know, is concerned about their security, but they're not looking around every corner to see what's around there that, that could threaten them. Uh, the, the kind of person who's driven by permanent security, you know, would never leave the house or would decide to build a big wall, uh, you know, uh, at furthest outreaches of their property so that no one can attack them and they can be autarkic. Now, certainly that, you know, autarkic empire, you know, self-sufficient empire was what the Nazis were after. Now, illiberal permanent security is, those kind of security ambitions driven by an ethnos, you know, by a particular people, in this case, you know, Germans or Aryans, quote unquote Aryans. Uh, whereas what I call liberal permanent security is driven by a project which is motivated by 
humanity. You know, we're doing this on behalf of humanity, not just us, but for everyone. Okay. And in the 19th century, this was uh, the British Empire with Pax Britannica. Uh, and so it's, it's linked very much to liberal empires as opposed to totalitarian empires. Uh, and in the, in, since in the second half of the 20th century, the American uh, state is an American empire is the driver of uh, liberal permanent security projects. Now, the way that they are lethal to civilians is different. Okay? Genocide is classically a, a outcome of liberal permanent security, illiberal permanent security. Okay? So the Holocaust, uh, what, uh, what the Italians are doing in uh, Northern Africa uh, in the late 30s, and so forth. Now, the, the liberal empires imperil civilians in different ways. Historically, for various contingent reasons, they gained superiority in air power and in nuclear power. So the, the killing of enemy civilians through air power, so the bombings in the Second World War, and of course, the nuclear, the atomic ones in Japan, are paradigmatic. And uh, if any of your listeners know how the um, American bombers treated North Korea in the early 50s in the conflict there, we'll know that they killed, I think, about 2 million civilians. I mean, these are stunning numbers. And they, they flat, I think, well over 50% of urban areas. And this needs, to be, this needs to be understood. There's a very good historian called Bruce Cummings who's written a lot about this. So the, the literature is there if people want to, want to uh, chase this up. And then, of course, there was all the civilian uh, bombing or killing of civilians in this mode in Vietnam. Now, there was, of course, an outcry about this kind of killing uh, at the time because it began to be televised. You know, Vietnam was televised in a way that, that Korea wasn't. And there was an outcry by the public to its credit. And since then, we've had the development of you know, precision missiles, drones, and so forth. So you don't get this kind of saturation bombing anymore that you that you used to. So it's much less lethal for civilians than than it used to be. So that's a, an improvement. However, there is a a, a a fatal dialectic here because warfare is in a way more humanitarian or less unhumanitarian. Okay, it's also more sustainable. Like the public doesn't get outraged anymore because you don't get mass casualty events like you used to, you know, flattening one city, killing hundreds of thousands of people. What you've got instead of just lots of pinpricks, you have, you know, drone strikes happening all the time. And people are being, innocent civilians are being killed in twos and threes, tens and twenties all the time. And there are projects that track this, by the way. Uh, Brown University has one. I think it's called The Costs of War. It's mentioned in an early footnote. You'll, I've got all the statistics there. And um, various other projects uh, track this as well, um, as, you know, as much as they can based on available information. So what I'm arguing is that over time, with a permanent state of security, permanent warfare, endless warfare that we have, small-scale warfare, low-intensity warfare, that America is engaged in with allies like Australia, UK, and so forth, um, multiple civilian casualties will accumulate so no, you know, obviously this is not a Holocaust, right? Or a genocide, but the civilian casualties accumulate over time. We need to ask ourselves, why, why are there drone strikes in Northwest Pakistan? What really has that got to do with American security? Right? What does Vietnam really have to do with American security? Uh, I mean, I know there was a, a, a vision or a view of you know, domino effect and so forth, but you know, your average farmer in Kansas wasn't really imperiled by the, the North Vietnamese or by the Viet Cong, you know, in, in, in any direct way, right? But here we have a, a vision of having to dominate parts of the world so that in the future, it may not become a threat to us. That's classic permanent security thinking. And the way that's enforced is through now, you know, air superiority in various ways which results inevitably in killing lots of civilians over time, even if it's in small-scale attacks. Um, you know, so there's a, there's a um, that looks different from from uh, classic you know genocidal situations, and it's not illegal most of the time. 
one of the arguments in the book is that international law uh, was designed by mainly the Western powers uh, initially in order to legitimize their versions of empire building in the 18th and 19th centuries and now into the 20th century with modern international law. Whereas the, the conduct of illiberal empires, you know, genocide and crimes against humanity, is criminalized. You know, we can all agree on that, right? But, but the, the way that states, and not just Western states, but many other states too now, like Saudi Arabia, uh, adopt this mode of expansionism in the name of permanent security leads to incredible civilian casualties and is often not illegal because of you know, various laws about proportionality and military necessity, which is a, a concept in, um, in international humanitarian law. You know, in other words, military necessity means that uh, a military commander can attack uh, a military objective uh, and he can calculate that certain numbers of civilian casualties are legitimate, you know, depending on the on the importance of that military objective. And it becomes a proportionality, a proportionality uh, calculation. So international humanitarian law is really not that humanitarian. It's really about allowing military necessity to, to play out by, and producing as few civilian casualties as possible, but it doesn't preclude any civilian casualties. You know, but if you, if you accumulate this over time, it's very destructive. Incidentally, I'd just like to finish this aspect by mentioning a book by a friend and colleague, Stephen Wertheim, which has just come out on the origins of uh, American plans for world empire or you know, global domination uh, in the early 1940s. Um, so tomorrow, the world, I think, has come. Um, this has come out, and I highly recommend it to your readers. In closing this discussion, um, we are, of course, talking to you on January 8th. Um, we have the pleasure of speaking to you this new year, but the displeasure of doing so just two days after what happened on Capitol Hill on Wednesday. Uh, by all accords, what has just occurred, um, this insurrection, is not mass casualty anywhere near the scale of genocide. Uh, but to an extent, you see the tenets of permanent security, right? In this obsession over a wall, in the rhetoric about immigrants being rapists and murderers, in this obsession with the MS-13 gang. Uh, you, you know, I, I think a farmer in Kansas has just as much to worry about from the Viet Congs as an MS-13 gang member coming up through the Midwest. Uh, it's difficult to not ask this question. Uh, do you view the ongoing rhetoric of this nation uh, that didn't just start four years ago, but started since the foundation, uh, the inception of this country centuries ago with an integrated caste system? Do you view that as a precursor to permanent security playing out on a dangerous scale in America? Oh, I see. Well, look, there are, there are two versions of permanent security intention in this country. One is the, the liberal empire of the of US elites, okay, which is in which is in control now that Biden's been re-elected. It'll be back to business as usual, but with a with a nice face. So he he is concerned about the environment and so forth. But I don't see him closing any bases or anything like that, right? So he's very close to military uh, the military establishment. And that's one reason there was no support for a, for a coup. Now, it's one thing that these clowns on Wednesday were engaged in, a, you know, kind of storming the capital and insurrectionary behavior, but there was there was no attempt, or there was no realistic attempt or prospect of an actual coup, because for a coup to take place, you need more than just popular direct action. You need the security forces to support you. Okay. That's why the downfall of Mubarak in, in Egypt during the Arab Spring was contingent on the army supporting the population. But, you know, when the army turned against the Muslim Brotherhood and Morsi, that was the end of it. So yeah, the security forces play the pivotal role there. And the, in a sense, the, the direct action of sections of the public is really just a legitimating or trigger or legitimating aspect. Now, that's the, you know, the, Business as usual is, is, is liberal security, right? What the, you know, what elements of these people, uh, judging by what we know so far from the videos and the social media, which I have looked at, what the, they're interested in, a, in an illiberal security project of a white supremacist America, you know, so, and it, it is driven by, you know, paranoia, hysteria, um, 
misinformation, you know, which which the president cultivated. You know? I mean, these people really believed that the election had been stolen. You know, they're utterly sincere, deluded, but sincere. And some of them, no doubt, well, we know some of them were parts of the white supremacist movement, the white power movement, but, I, but not all necessarily, not all. So it's hard to generalize. A lot, a lot of them, you know, have a kind of touching faith in the constitution as they understand it and, and have a, you know, an anti-elitist, if you like, even democratic sensibility. This is certainly what I heard in the interviews, okay? And they weren't talking about race and so forth. So I think it's quite a mixed bag. Uh, you know, the, the, the spectrum on the right is very uneven or just, you know, there's a lot of variety there. Uh, and, and a lot of it's quite racist, but not all of it. And, and if you listen to the, if you listen to the Republican convention, you saw a great, which I did you know, quite in detail, there was a great effort made, however sincere or insincere, right? We can't get into that, to, to propose a, a multiracial project in, of, if you like, successful American capitalism in which everyone has a, can benefit because the, the party was making a pitch for African-American and Latino and Asian voters, right? There's a cynical aspect there, but, you know, that's how democracy works. You need to get votes, right? But, uh, it, you know, there was... In, you know, at least in the political rhetoric and those speeches, right? There was no talk of, you know, white supremacist and so forth. Now, there, of course, in practice, we know that on the ground it works out very differently and that there are members of that party who, who do have Confederate sympathies and so forth. A lot of people are running around the Capitol with Confederate flags. You know, that tells you what you need to know, right? So, you know, their project of for security, if you like, security of the white nation is definitely in a liberal permanent security project. And the fact that they're prepared to go to these extremes and some of them invoking, you know, having terrorist fantasies, which you, to get to your question about a, a mass casualty event, are certainly, are certainly um, seized by paranoid delusions, which, uh, which will lead them to, to engage in terrorist acts. You need to read the work of uh, Catherine Berlu at the University of Chicago who's written a lot about this, um, the, the last name's B-E-L-E-W, who's written an important book about the white power movement since the Vietnam War. And you know, based on primary sources, not just stuff she, you, know, you see online. And uh, she's written, also written a lot in the press and on, is on YouTube and so forth. And she shows, shows this in great detail. But she also shows, as do other researchers, that there's a lot of variety on the right. Uh, and, you know, some of it's within the Republican Party, a lot of it's far to the right of it. I mean, they probably vote Republican, but they regard that just as a contingent vehicle and they have their little cells and farms and are, you know, engaged in little cottage industries. I mean, one of the, one of the you know, issues with the security state is very worrying as everybody's listening to your phone calls while you're reading your email and so forth. And in, in the global war on terror, the targeting targeting Muslims and other people. And we know that Black Lives Matter activists are targeted as well. But it, they can all, the FBI can also infiltrate these far-right groups and, you know, and get them, for example, before they carry out their plot to kidnap and execute Gretchen Weimar in Michigan. You know, so it cuts both ways. And I'm sure they're on a high alert now for a repetition of the, the bombing in Oklahoma. Uh, because that's the kind of group that's producing that. And what I've seen from various political commentators is that, you know, they're, they're expecting now that they've been crushed, this movement's been crushed in, in, in DC and embarrassed, but they will now move back into, into underground, off the grid to try to avoid FBI intrusion or infiltration. And then, in, you know, if they can't win politically, then they try to move terroristically. And that's where mass casualty event prospects come into play. For the listeners at home, you can learn more about Dr. Moses and his work at DirkMoses.com, linked in the show notes. The Problems of Genocide asks its readers to look beyond the confines of our inherited legal and moral categories to recognize the persistence of liberal and illiberal permanent security practices that confront us today. It comes out through Cambridge University Press next month. This was The General Desk. Up next is Culture. <music>
Jenny Crum is our senior culture correspondent. She joins us from Cartersville, Georgia now. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Alex and Will. All right, give us some context. Um, Where are we and what is this piece about? Over the past 200 years, Montmartre has really become a place where creatives, artists, writers have come to escape the kind of stringent, um, I guess, elitism of the downtown Paris in the Parisian Salon. The Parisian Salon was the um, annual gallery of artists that the was partially state funded, but um, they had a lot of artists during the late 1800s that were in the realist tradition. And artists like Monet and um, Gauguin and Manet, they decided collectively to leave the Parisian Salon and move to Montmartre in the 18th arrondissement and create their own highly accessible um, collection of artworks where they could express themselves and display their artworks in a way that was not just for the elite, but could be accessible to everyone. And really the the key focus here is the fact that they came all together. They didn't just, it wasn't like a few of them came to that part. And then when they came, um, so did writers and other like creatives who weren't necessarily artists, but they really found this community of people who decided to go against what the norm was. And they ended up actually creating their own art period, which was the post-oppressionist and oppressionist movement. Um, so Montmartre has always been a place where these people who kind of don't fit the norm or aren't necessarily totally culturally accepted within the given Parisian society have come and flocked for hundreds of years. And that continues today. I mean, they have with over 100,000 immigrants coming to Paris and or coming to France, and then a lot of them coming to Paris for the job opportunities. Um, artists, they still come to Montmartre to start their art careers when they can't survive in the expensive downtown districts. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the ways in which uh, artists are coming together and the organization that is supporting them in Montmartre? There has been an influx of immigrants, obviously, and a lot of these immigrants, they don't have necessarily the most money or the resources or know where the resources are in Paris to kick off their art careers when they immigrate or come as refugees from other countries, a lot of them from African countries, but also from Latin American countries. You see Portuguese immigrants and Honduran immigrants coming to Paris to seek the opportunities that Europe provides. But a lot of these artists, they are artists at the heart. And so they're also immigrants, but they they want to continue their passions and they don't lose that passions when that passion when they come over. So Le Sartelier des Artistes en Exil has is this foundation and this organization that accommodates to these marginalized artists. Um, they meet the needs of these, what they call artists in exile by providing them with the, like, the tools, the connections, the resources that they need to be able to do what they love. And it's this kind of group of like, just like the impressionists who all flocked to Montmartre, this organization started in Montmartre. Now they're located just 10 minutes away, 10 minute walk from the Louvre, but they started in Montmartre and they come together with all these immigrants come together and they create and follow their passions and build off of each other's ideas and shared experience to create a place that's really just filled with life and um, just their passions. And it's really, really fascinating and kind of humanizing to see people come together in such a way. And for people, the people who started the um, organization to recognize this need that needed to be filled. Can you talk to us about the significance of this organization today, especially in light of anti-immigration sentiments in France? Yeah, so there has been in recent years, within the past 10 years, but also, I mean, this has been, it's not just in France, but largely in Europe and also obviously in America, there's this um, anti-immigrant rhetoric as places in the Middle East, places in Africa um, have a lot of refugees that are seeking shelter in countries where they can have safety provided by a government. And so Paris and specifically has been a place where a lot of um, migrants from the East and from the South have come. And so this space has been a place where they can, this or this, the AAE, which is the Les Arteliers d'Artistes in Exil, is a place where they have come together to escape the, the, the anti-immigration like rhetoric that's in Paris still and in Montmartre, but it's, there's no, there's the outside world kind of goes away when they enter this space and are around other immigrants. And it's 
kind of beautiful in a way that it's like a shelter both literally and also just like a mental shelter from anti-immigrant rhetoric that's really 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 avid in in France and in um like Europe uh, largely in Europe as well you can read about Montmartre an artist sanctuary at the culture desk at thefinchpodcast.com thank you Jenny and so that's how a Parisian district grew and flourished into a haven for marginalized artists. This was the Culture Desk. Up next, the Seed section. Selena Zhao is the senior editor of our Seed section. She joins us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. What exactly is the Seed Desk? Um, at the Seed Desk, we're here to plant and cultivate curiosity. Got a question? We have an answer. No matter what subject of interest or outlandishness, I'm here to give well-researched and easily understandable explanations on everything from why our hair and nails never stop growing to why octopuses will sometimes punch fish for no apparent reason. Keep an eye out for special appearances for Snarky Seed too, who likes to give sarcastic responses. Here, our goal is to explore the world with unfettered imagination, so stop by any time to start asking away. This week's question is, why do fingernails and hair keep growing? Wouldn't they be a limitation at a certain point? Take it away. Based on the fossil record, primates likely developed the earliest fingernails between 55 and 58 million years ago. And fingernails would have helped maintain a wide shape for fingers, and they increased the surface area for finger pads, improving grip for climbing through trees. And nails also have a direct protective function, and um, they act as mini shields to protect thousands of nerves located within our fingers. And similarly, hair is excellent for protection and especially evaporative cooling. So hair on our heads shields from the direct heat of the sun and even leaves an area for sweat evaporation between your scalp and the surface of the hair. Um, and in fact, curly hair people actually do the best in terms of this function. So curly hair uh, is the most effective in performing evaporative cooling. Tell us about growth. Uh, why do fingernails and hair keep growing? Um, like any other part of your body, your fingernails and hair are made of cells that are constantly growing, duplicating and dying. And both hair and nails are made of the same tough, dead substance called keratin. And nails, the root, which is also known as the germinal matrix, produces the keratin cells that form the nail. And as more cells form, they're gradually pushed forwards by the constant production of cells behind them. And eventually the older cells are jostled out to form the hard nail plate. Um, so this results in a growth of about 0.1 inches per month for fingernails. Head hair actually follows a similar process at about 0.5 inches per month on average. Um, and that's because the follicles are constantly remaining in an antigen or active growth stage for a pretty long time. So this constant replenishing of old with new allows for replacement relief for potentially damaged or injured areas. Selena, do you have anything else to add? Yeah, so... Modern problems require ancient solutions. So quarantine veins or like a bad dye job are fixed because of these evolutionary functions. Thank you, Selena. Uh, we look forward to having you back on another seed section in the near future. And now you know more about your hair and nails than you'll ever need. This was the seed section. Up next, the book review. Celestine Winardi is our senior book editor. She joins us from Jakarta, Indonesia now. Good evening. How are you? Hello. I'm good. How are you? Great. So what is this book you reviewed this week? And can you just tell us a little bit about it? Yes. Yeah, so this week I reviewed um, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, which won a Nobel Prize. And I imagine that it's the type of book that's going to be examined in classes 50 years to come. Now, this book is a really masterful combination of science fiction, coming of age, and horror, and like suspense, and all of those genres. But they just like um, they really, really blend in well together. And the book basically follows three best friends reflecting on their childhood in this isolated boarding school. And perhaps the first half of the book follows a very unassuming premise. So you know, these children have adventures together and begin to discover what they love and what they don't. And um, you know, they're just growing up and navigating their newfound interests. It's slightly reminiscent of a lot of the stories I read as a child. Um, but, you know, the language makes it clear that there's something amiss, but we don't quite understand what it is because we're really caught up in this whole um, teenage angsty plot line. But actually, like around halfway or like two thirds into the book, um, we discover that this boarding school is actually a place um, where clones are 
brought up and bred um, and their organs would later be harvested. So that obviously throws a whole twist into the whole thing, even though we understand from the beginning that there's something not right. Um, but what's really off-putting is that these people don't understand that what's going on isn't right. So we understand that they know um, they're being shipped off, but they don't understand you know, how atrocious that is because that's the only reality that they know. And really like when I learned about this, I just like sat down and thought about the things that we as a society currently accept as normal or like inevitable, the things we currently don't question. And, you know, whether like the people in Never Let Me Go, whether we only accept these things because it's that we know um, for them being harvested, um, getting their organs harvested seems normal because there's no other reality that they know and they don't quite understand how terrible it is. Um, you know, what makes the book really stick out is how it's narrated so conversationally. And there's this very distinct, uh, there's this very deceptively youthful feel, even after we realize that, even after we realize that they're getting, um, that, you know, their fate's inevitably terrible. Um, they go and they have adventures and um, the book is very useful and it's just a really, really stark contrast to the actual horrors that are going on in the book. And um, the, the way Ichigoro writes is just so beautifully masterful and it's a terrifying horror story that just like makes you think about humanity wrapped in coming of age language and plot lines. And I definitely recommend it. <laughs> it's, it's a great book. Right. As I was listening to your review of this book, which our listeners can find at www.thefinchpodcast.com under our book section, the fact that they're just resigned to accept their fate as it is definitely stood out to me the most. Um, as we wrap up this interview, I have one last question for you. Um, on a scale of one Celestine to ten Celestines, what would you rate this book? I mean, like like a solid 9.8. This book has been like my favorite book for the past like three years running. I reread it like every few months. Um, yeah, I think, you know, there are only a few books in this world that people can probably say. Um, there are only like a few books in this world that like everyone kind of remembers and keeps closely to their heart. You know, I, I read a lot of books like um, in the past year, I've read like something over 400 books. And this was probably one of five that I still very, very closely remember and reread. So we look forward to having you back in a few weeks to see what other books you have for us. Thank you. This was our book review. Stay tuned for the Opinion Desk coming right up. Well, I suppose that um, our next guest is someone you're already very familiar with and someone who needs no introduction, but I'll introduce him anyway. This is Alex Benoit, one of our co-hosts. Um, he's headed to Harvard University next year. And he's the author of this piece on Just-in-Time America, which you can find in the Opinion Desk on our website, www.thefinchpodcast.com. Welcome, Alex. Um, let's start this off. Let's get right into it. What is Just-in-Time America and what is this piece about? Awesome. Great to see you, Will, uh, even though I saw you not so long ago. Um, Just-in-Time <laughs> America is, is something that uh, we've been talking about on The Finch uh, back when it was The Finch Podcast and now that we're The Finch Media Group for a while now. And it's based off of um, the just-in-time production model, which was pioneered by Toyota in the 1990s. And the idea is that you get the resources you need right before you need them. You don't stockpile and you don't really plan ahead. It's whatever you need in the moment. And, um, you know, so getting the inspiration for this piece, which I wrote um, back in early December, the idea was uh, I saw a lot of parallels between the just-in-time model for production and the modern conservative party. And this sort of followed a really tumultuous election season where at the end of the day, um, the question was after Trump lost, what happens to the Republican party? And really to address that question of what happens to the Republican party, you need to know what the Republican party is and what conservatism is. Um, my main you know, sort of catalyst for writing this piece was that several political pundits, including um, those that uh, New York Times said that if Trump lost, um, you know, basically the Republican Party would forget about him. And we've seen with impeachment, uh, his second impeachment, and we've seen with uh, continued claims of widespread election fraud that are unfounded. That's just not the case. A lot of the Republican Party has ended up backing him. Over 70% of Republicans uh, believe that the election was not fair, and over 40% of Republicans think that what happened on Capitol Hill on January 6th was okay. 
And so um, to try to find out, you know, what the Republican Party is and what it does and what it's made of, um, I sort of try to take this lens of what a just-in-time political party means. Yeah, and I also see some sort of chicken and egg argument here. Um, is Trump the Republican Party or is the Republican Party Trump? And uh, I, you, you address this on your article. What is your take on this? Yeah, this is a really difficult question. And, and I'm curious what you think as well. But the whole idea of Trumpism and, you know, is is it now the GOP just a Trump flavor or has it become its own thing? And I'd be from the camp that says that um, this is still the Republican Party and that um, basically the Republican Party has been building up to this um, for a while now. And Trump is sort of the epitome of it. Um, by sort of saying that this is the Trumpism or uh, Trump's GOP, uh, I feel like it almost gives them the credit to say, well, this is a different faction. You know, these are either extremist or they're extreme populist. Um, and I just don't think that the case. that's the case. I think in 2024, uh, we're going to have a party um, that embraces a lot of the same policies. They're going to pick someone who is not as much of a threat or risk, um, you know, in terms of charisma. So maybe a guy like Mike Pence, honestly. Um but uh, I think they really like his just-in-time approach, and that approach is um, twofold uh, and something that I tried to investigate throughout this piece. Um, conservatism started off as an economic uh, belief following the New Deal. Um, the New Deal was by all means successful for liberals in that it expanded the federal government. But a lot of people you know, felt that it was too invasive, and so what they turned to was this conservative approach where um, you know, this embracing of a free market and embracing of a hands-off approach and embracing of immediate returns and immediate gratification. And then the second part of the story is um, if you have a party that's too dedicated and too obsessed with immediate gain, um, you know, older voters, uh, more pious voters might see this as a risk because it's completely changed. It's always changing. It's not very, you know, solid. And so the Republican Party, uh, the grand old party of Lincoln needed an anchor and uh, starting with Reagan in the 80s and uh, really this uh, turn towards morality, um, uh, you know, obsession over things like gay marriage, abortion, uh, the anchor became religion. And so you have this weird sort of mix of a party where economically they're obsessed with the short term, but um, socially they're more interested in the long term. Uh, and that's why, you know, you hear them talking about uh, Lincoln all the time and the Constitution and then a lot of religious references. Uh, whereas I almost view the modern liberal party or, you know, progressive wing as the opposite, obsessed with um, uh, short term social change, you know, adapting to the way in which our societies are changing, whether that means being more inclusive or just changing attitudes, but being more uh, economically long term, envisioning what will happen uh, through, um, you know, long term investments. Uh, and that's really played out during the pandemic as well. But I, I, I don't think that Trump has his own um you know, GOP wing. I, and I think the Republican Party sort of afraid to admit that Trump was a perfect remedy for them. Right. And I think there's another element to it, too. Um, and to our listeners at home, we've had this conversation uh, many a time. So we're, we're sort of pretending that we've never discussed it before for the sake of this podcast. But um, another thing that's come up is facade America, um, pretending to care. And that's that's what we view as Trump gassing protesters to hold a Bible in front of a church. Um, that's what we view as Trump denouncing white supremacy, yet promoting them in his tweets and his actions, um, doing enough to say to the media, I condemn them, I don't support them. And yet going behind their backs, going behind his back and doing um, whatever it is that, that incites violence, such as capital riots. Um, do you view conservatism uh, using religion as a uniting force. Do you view that sort of as the same facade almost? I genuinely think they're members of the, conser and the conservative um, party, you know, the, G the Republican Party. They're, they're pretty much one and the same now with this two-party system that are religious um, and um, that really try to apply religion, um, whatever that religion may be. Um, someone like Mitt Romney has consistently been you know, has consistently professed his uh, Mormon identity. But, you know, I don't have a problem with that because he actually uses, you know, what he believes to be religion um, in making his decisions. And, and I find that that's okay because I don't think, you know, and maybe I'm being I'm mistaken, but uh, I really don't think that anyone truly believes Trump is religious. He's, he's not. And, and the fascinating thing to me is like Trump is the embodiment 
of just-in-time econ- economics, right? He's he's always been just interested in self-gain and immediate gain. Uh, but what he had to fake and what he convinced a lot of people was that he was long-term interested socially and religion, whereas, you know, it's entirely performative. And I think for a lot of the conservative party, it is also performative. Guys like, you know, Jim Jordan or Matt Gates, who will, in the same sentence, talk about, you know, the glory of God, but then talk about how uh, immigrants need to be turned right. away at the border. Right. It's just complete contradictions to actual religious teachings. Yeah, and personally, as a Christian myself, I find it so frustrating when um, the GOP parades itself as the, the party of Christians or the the holier-than-thou party when um, really Christianity, um, in my opinion, and I mean, in largely most people's opinion, should not be partisan. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. And and during the 2020 Democratic, um, you know, primary, I think Pete Buttigieg perfectly summarized that up in saying that the Republican Party has a monopoly on God. And, um, you know, right. they've done exceptionally well uh, by almost making all of their arguments um, oriented towards that, right? Like, whether it be abortion or same-sex marriage or immigration, the idea being, you know, putting uh, the teach, you know, this sort of, what would Jesus do? But of course, we know that's not what he would do, but it, it, it's a justification. Right. And it makes it so that, you know, uh, progressives or liberals are immediately become synonymous with immoral, right? Like, it, and, and, it's impo- and, I, and I entirely agree with you, like, this country was built as a secular country. Uh, there's, there's not supposed to be. Um, religion that is becomes part of a party platform but that's the way it has been uh, to the point where like you know it's almost untouchable I, I, I don't think religion as part of the GOP will change even after a, a literal insurrection uh, this idea of morality has consist has you know proven to be beneficial for the Republican evangelical base since the 1980s for over 40 years it's worked and I think it's going to continue working even after having a president who was twice divorced a 26 times accused of sexual assault, right, you know, right. bankrupt, a casino-owning gambler. It's 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 actually quite fascinating. But he's he's the figurehead of the party of God, apparently. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's... it's, And so the whole idea behind this piece is sort of like getting to this notion that I, I truly believe economically the conservatives um, believe what they believe. And, they, and that is just... That is their policy. That is their approach. Um, and I think the second, you know, part of the story with religion... Um, is the facade part, you know, I think you can be religious and be part of any party. Um, but the fact that it has become a part of their party was out of necessity, not out of, you know, actual volition. They needed the voters. They needed, you know, for, for, they needed Reagan. They needed someone that would, that would trump, uh, triumph like morality and, 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 and against sin. And so they, you know, they found a really good political consultant in God. Right. Um, and another thing with the the GOP is uh, they're they're an intensely loyal group too, um, which which made the defectors with the impeachment hearings just so shocking. We were talking about this literally on a call earlier today. We were looking at Mitt Romney and saying, "Wow, he he voted against the president. He voted against his own party. That's like so groundbreaking." But it shouldn't be groundbreaking. And um, the GOP has cultivated this this cult um, to to put it another way. Um, I want to talk a little bit about misinformation and, and the role that's had to play in Trumpism. I know this is getting a little bit off topic, but um, we've seen Trump getting removed from almost all social media platforms, from Twitter, Facebook, all, all of these platforms, um, platforms that he's used to cultivate this um, this following of people that, that succumb to every one of his whims. Um, and... Like him or hate him, you you have to give Trump props that he's realized what America's like. He's realized how polarized we are, um, and he's preyed on that uh, really well. He's he succeeded incredibly well in doing what he's doing, and so I don't really have a question in mind here. I just want to talk about this this idea of misinformation and just preying on the division of the American people. Yeah, I think I think you're entirely right, and I think the fascinating thing with Trump is like. We've talked about this as well. I genuinely think as an individual, not as a president, he is probably more socially liberal than Biden, who is an extremely devout Catholic and has been for his whole life. Uh, you know, Trump Trump does not care about something like abortion. Yeah, I know it. You know, there's um, but he saw that there were people that did. And um, I really think, you know, if you're ranking priorities of a party 
and and this goes back to why parties exist but for the republican party the priority is economics this you know the religious aspect of it or the morality is sort of serves to to support them and so they saw there was a president that was economically conservative and it didn't matter if he was divorced once or 34 times he was always going to be economically conservative and he was always going to be able to act superficially economically uh, sorry socially conservative um and, that, and that's what he did and so you know that's the power of misinformation um anytime there was any sort of rebuke to that he was always able to provide an alternative story you know like i i'm convinced that if he had run in the time of reagan where you know media was not as available he would not have been able to capitalize on this quick media cycle if you're consistently distracting people um, people can't latch on and realize like, well, hey, this guy doesn't actually care. You know, this guy hasn't been to church a single time during his past four years. This guy is is not, you know, socially conservative. Uh, but by consistently, you know, sort of distracting the American public and feeding on this division, um, I think, you know, they could have put anyone. And I think this is the same thing with the Democratic Party in 2020. Um, you know, I think I think the Democrats could have put nearly any one of those Democratic primary candidates and would have won because you know the alternative is was not feasible and i think for republicans for whatsoever reason you know um i i don't particularly like you know hillary clinton that much but they sort of equated her with with a donald trump and and so it didn't matter if he was anything he was he was fiscally conservative and that was what they needed after eight years of uh liberal uh economics You can read more about Just In Time America at www.thefinchpodcast.com under the opinion desk. And if you have any ideas um, that you want to get out of your head, that you want uh, to get out into the world, you can submit an op-ed to the opinion desk yourself. This has been Alex and Will from The General Desk. In this episode, we've spoken about criminal definitions, artists in exile, regenerative biology, coming of age in horror, and the grand old party. This episode was made with the help of Jenny Crum, Selena Zows, Celestine Winardi, Will Fang, and myself. You can find out more about what we do by reading the show notes and by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube at The Finch Media. If you like our work, please feel free to leave us a review, but only if it's good as Celestine's. This time, next week, we'll be back with our finance, politics, and after-dark desks. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Goodbye and thank you from The Finch Media Group.